Destination, the moon. For landing, retro. Go. Lido. Go. Guide. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. Okay, Neil, we can see you coming down the ladder now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Nearly 40 years after Neil Armstrong first walked on the lunar surface, NASA is planning on going back. But their next step isn't to land, it's to crash. The whole world will be able to watch us smash into the moon and watch the impact come up at us as we uh, fly towards it. It may seem like needless pyrotechnics, but for Dr. Anthony Colaprit and the team of scientists at NASA Ames Research Center in Mountain View, it's destruction with a decided purpose. Their LCROSS, or Lunar Crater Observation and Sensing Satellite, may provide NASA the key to understanding how to build a permanent base on the moon. Many scientists believe that a manned moon base, now slated for completion in 2024, is the first step toward colonizing Mars and beyond. The moon represents the nearest planetary body that we can land on and put infrastructure on. If we want to go off to Mars or other uh, icy worlds around Jupiter, there's no better place to understand how to put down significant infrastructure than the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. NASA has always been interested in colonizing the moon, but the moon's apparent lack of water, established by Apollo missions in the 60s and 70s, has always made it a poor candidate. This opinion is now changing. More recent missions, such as Lunar Prospector, have picked up traces of hydrogen, fueling the debate about the presence of water on the surface. So if there is water up there, where is it? Experts believe the best place to look is at the moon's south pole, where sun craters exist in permanent darkness, and that presents some issues. The fundamental premise of this mission is to impact someplace dark, and that gives a lot of people a lot of heartburn. It gives me a lot of uh, sleepless nights, quite frankly. Some of these regions may be three billion years old. It allows you to accumulate water, even if it's just molecules at a time. A molecule a day over three billion years starts to add up. Having chosen the most likely location, the next step is to expose the materials beneath the surface. That's where the demolition derby astrophysicists at NASA Ames Research Center come in. And we're just basically shooting a big piece of metal into the moon to kick up a lot of debris. That metal is, you can think of it as the equivalent of an SUV, a sport utility vehicle, slamming into the moon at about 5,600 miles per hour. And so we'll get this big plume that comes up and that's what we'll look at. Set to launch in 2008, LCROSS will piggyback on an already existing mission called the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, or LRO. One of the things that LCROSS will hopefully help to answer is, A, if there's water there, and B, if there is, how much? Eagle, Houston, we, Houston, we see you on the stairwell, over. Roger, Eagle, I'm done. If a permanent base is to succeed on the moon, it will need water, both for drinking and for processing into hydrogen-based rocket fuel. But hauling water from Earth just isn't affordable. 
Currently, it costs about $10,000 per pound to lift something into orbit. Then, another three to 5,000 more per pound to reach the moon. So, at eight pounds, a single gallon of water could cost over $100,000 to ship to a lunar colony. That's a lot of money. And uh, you know, a gallon of water doesn't last very long, especially if, if you're drinking it and using it for rocket fuel. It'd be a lot easier if we could mine water, live off the land and get water out of the moon. And that's why we're so interested in finding water at the moon. Here's how the mission will work. We launch in a stacked configuration with both of us on top of the Atlas IV rocket. Once we're into space, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter gets kicked off, pushed to the moon, and goes on its own. We then take control of the upper stage of the rocket called the Centaur, and we shepherd it around the Earth in two very large orbits. We do that to get our timing just right so that when the moon comes into position, we're at just the right spot where we can impact it from the, at the South Pole. We do that then by steering that upper stage that we've held onto this whole time. Eight hours prior to impact, we let go of that upper stage of the rocket, the Centaur. We separate ourselves from it and we watch it as it goes in and impacts. When it impacts, it makes an explosion. Our little shepherding spacecraft now becomes an observing spacecraft. Eventually, we actually fly through the plume itself, making measurements the whole time, and impact ourselves. After LCROSS meets a fiery end, the LRO will perform a flyover, studying the aftermath of both impacts. Although the 40-mile-high debris plume will be visible from Earth, it will only last a matter of seconds. Planning for the LCROSS mission is a study in complexity. For the mission to succeed, scientists need to understand the exact characteristics of the debris plume caused by the initial impact. In particular, they need to predict how and when the plume will rise above the edge of the crater and into the warming sunlight, rendering it measurable to LCROSS's onboard sensors. So how do you predict the unpredictable? Meet Dr. Peter Schultz. I blast things. Yeah, I, I've done this since I've been a kid. Ever since I did a cannonball, I was just fascinated by stuff going in the air. Dr. Schultz and his team in Mountain View have the daunting task of modeling the actual impact and determining the characteristics of the resulting plume. To do this, they'll use a special three-story vertical gun to shoot objects such as small balls of glass, steel, aluminum, and copper down into a vacuum chamber containing a model of the moon's surface made up of dust that simulates lunar soil. If it works, it will serve as a tiny scale model of the event LCROSS hopes to observe. What's beautiful about this, we can take a very small projectile and if we understand the relationships between the velocity, that is the speed, and the size, the density, and if we understand the target, we can then begin to understand what it might look like when we go really up in scale, you know, to LCROSS, for example, and we can test and see whether how well that works. The team partially blocks out the light within the chamber to imitate the shade at the bottom of a crater. The hope okay, is the blast will blow material rockets. high enough to reach the sunlight, where LCROSS will be able to measure its composition. I think we're ready. Now we know what it looks like beforehand. Let's see what we do to it. Using multiple high-speed cameras, the team is able to capture high-resolution images of the entire impact. 
Oh, oh, that is so cool. Man, if Elk Cross can be that good, you got it made in the shade. Okay, oh, absolutely. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, here, now this is coming into the sunlight. Look at the ring. Now, oh, yeah, now we now got, now we got, the, whole the, whole we got whole the whole ring. We got the whole ring. Oh, this is so cool. Data gathered from these tiny model impacts holds the key to a successful L-Cross mission. In turn, the information L-Cross collects from the lunar surface may lay the groundwork for mankind's next steps into space. We want to go back to the moon for exploration purposes to, one, get, gain the confidence, gain the experience, gain the know-how to build significant space missions. Debate about the value of a manned moon base has raged for decades. But for scientists at NASA Ames Research Center, there is no controversy. There is only passionate belief in the Elcross mission and pride in knowing that the fruit of their labor may help determine the shape of mankind's future among the stars. <laughs>